Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Hello and welcome to Hay Festival 2018. I'm Julia Eccleshare from the management team and I'm absolutely delighted to be introducing this event. Now there's some important housekeeping and one is the thing that you have already done which is sitting near the front and the other is, oh, can I have it up on the screen? There's a, there's a, uh, uh, that's it. Can you please all get that on your phones? and enter the code that's up there. Sorry, we're making you work this afternoon, but it'll be worth it to you. Um, so while you are doing that, I am going to also say, please can you welcome Cecilia Brassett, Emily Evans, and Isla Fay for this event on the secret language of anatomy. Thank you very much. Welcome, everybody. Uh, if you don't mind, I can all see you've got your telephones out, which is brilliant. So if you're navigating to liveboxvote.com and entering the code 77855, I'll do it with you and with any luck. Uh, we will. You'll get a little, uh, little uh, message saying, waiting for a new question, and that's fine. What we're going to do today, just for fun, and throw you into a little quiz, a little um, box pop, and uh, see, test your knowledge of anatomy. Um, and just give you, I'm not going to say very much more about it than that, just to give you a flavour of, um, of a theme of what we're going to talk about later on today. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, while you're doing that, I'll just introduce this. Uh, this is what we're here to talk about, the secret language of anatomy. And here's our little quiz. So we've got three questions for you. I'll give you a preview, and then we'll get stuck in. So the first question is, uh, the bone in the leg is called the fibula because it looks like a sword, it looks like a column, it looks like the spoke of a wheel, it looks like a pen, or it looks like a brooch clasp. Where in the body can we find a Roman snail? The ear, the stomach, the lung, the eyes, or the brain? And finally, which two regions of the body contain structures that are shaped like the Greek letter sigma, an S shape? Is it the bladder and rectum, the nose and heart, the brain and colon, the ankle and throat, or the stomach and duodenum? So have a little think. I'll show them to you again, and then we'll crack on to the results and see how you fare. You can. The code is 77855. 77855. Bear with me. Bear with me. All will be revealed. Don't you worry. Okay. Do you, have you got the questions now? Excellent. Well done. Thank you. This is technically glitch-free. So here we go. The bones in the leg is called a fibula because it looks like a sword. It looks like a column. It looks like the spoke of a wheel. It looks like a pen. It looks like a brooch clasp. Vote away. How are we doing? Voted? Tw 19 seconds left. You can have a gentle think about it. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. I'm hoping we'll get a bunch of answers. Ta-da! <laughs> that worked better than I feared. Good. So you guys all think it looks like a brooch clasp. Let's take a look. You are geniuses. You obviously don't need to be here. You don't need to know anything else about our books. It is, in fact, a brooch class. That is a fibula brooch dug out of the ground somewhere near Colchester. It's a Roman fibula brooch to hold a, I don't know, some, some clothing together. 
So again, the ear, the stomach, the lung, the eye, or the brain for the location for your Roman snail. Sixty seconds. Think about it. Where would you find uh, a Roman snail in the body? The ear, the stomach, the lung, the eye, or the brain. causing some amusement at the front. Somebody's had some intervention with their Roman snail, maybe? An implant? What do you folks reckon? It is the ear. All right, clever clogs. Which which bit of the ear? So shout it out, somebody. Geniuses. Okay, and then finally. Yeah. So there's an actual snail shell at the top. That is not part of the of human anatomy. And the bottom, you'll find some um, inner ear. Um, dissected cochlea that come out of our museum um, collection at the University of Cambridge. You'll probably learn a little bit more about that very shortly. And then finally, which two regions of the body contain structures that are shaped like the Greek letter sigma? The bladder and rectum, the nose and heart, the ankle and throat, or the brain and colon, or the stomach and duodenum? Um, and the answer, vote away. Bladder and rectum, nose and heart, brain and colon, ankle and throat, or stomach and duodenum, structures that are S-shaped in your body. Okay, so five, four, three, two, one. You guys think? Ah, you found this a little harder. You reckon it's the st stomach and duodenum, 41% of you. Any other guesses, any advances? It is, in fact, the brain and colon. Um, so there you go, that is the sigmoid colon down there. And just because um, our... Boss, Cecilia, who's hiding at the moment, used to be a general surgeon and uh, very much in love with everything digestive. Um, we thought we'd show you this little colonoscopy picture as well. So I don't know if any of you guys have had this procedure done. I'm hoping that lunch was long enough ago that this isn't causing you any discomfort looking at that. Well done, guys. You did very well. Better than average. Um, so you can give yourselves a little round of applause. Thank you for bearing with us for the technical side of things. And I'm going to hand over to Emily, who's going to tell you actually a little bit about the book and what you came to, to hear more about today. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so um, we all, three of us, work in the dissection room at Cambridge University. And um, Cambridge University has a long history of anatomical dissection. So even though the first medical teachings of anatomy alongside medicine started in 1231. Um, actual human cadaveric dissection didn't start till around 1565, and this was mainly in Gonville and Keyes College. But there is, as you can understand, they were allowed two bodies by Elizabeth I every year to dissect. And I'm sure you understand that all the medical students in Cambridge couldn't just survive on learning all their anatomy from two cadavers a year. And if you're aware of all the different um, body-snatching stories of human dissection throughout history, we are aware that there has been, um, there has been 
it recorded that human dissection was performed in Magdalen College in Cambridge, which is perfectly suited for being by the gates of the castle, where the executed felons would be brought down to be dissected at Magdalen. And we're quite confident that that occurred throughout all the colleges in Cambridge. But the first formal anatomy school was created about 300 years ago. In Queens Lane in Cambridge, that site doesn't exist anymore. But we teach at the Downing Street site in Cambridge. Now, this is a picture of the Cambridge dissection room from about 130 years ago. You'll be pleased to see that it looks far more modern now than it did back then.、Uh, we take around 50 bodies each year for dissection, and at the end of each academic year, the, all the students attend a committal service where they get to pay their respects to both the donor and the relatives.、Um, so the three of us came to the dissection room from different paths. I trained as an anatomist and then was a secondary school teacher, and then retrained as a medical artist while teaching anatomy at St George's University. Cecilia was actually a graduate at Cambridge University in medicine, trained as a general surgeon, and then moved to linguistics before she came to the university. And Isla joined us a little later with a background in historical research and writing about osteoarchaeology. So. With teaching anatomy, I'm sure some of you have heard that it's it's said that the students feel that they're learning a whole new language. They literally have to learn thousands of brand new names that they really don't know what they mean, assigned to all these random parts.、And、so I've put this slide up here of just the muscles of the human body, and you can see with the muscles alone just how many different obscure names、um, that the students have to learn. So you can see how baffling it is for them. But what we were interested in doing with this book was trying to demystify this idea that anatomy terminology is incredibly hard and obscure, and actually it has an incredibly logical origin. So I'm going to hand back to Isla, who's going to talk to you a little bit more about the etymology of language. Oh, sorry. It's all good. Yeah. Thanks, Emily. So our book、um, does explore the etymology of anatomical terms. <laughs> Etymology. I don't need to tell you because you're a very clever audience. Is the study of the origin of words, its their meanings, and the way that words change over time, the way they evolve.、Um, it's a term that some stupid people confuse with entomology, which is, of course, the study of creepy crawlies like that one. He's just exiting our stage.、Um, so this slide gives us a flavour of etymology,、uh, showing the derivation of, of some related words. So we've got record. Recourse, remember, recursion—related words in the English language. Contributing to our current English word "record" is the Latin word "cordis," meaning "of the heart." And the etymologist here is making the case—I don't know if you guys can read that—that、um, the hearts used to be thought of as the, as the location where memories were stored. The heart, not the brain,、um, is, is the seat of memory. So that's sort of an exercise in etymology. Um, you might have done this yourself. Idly thought about the origin of words and why things have words have the meanings that they've acquired over time. And English place names are often a source of great fun and amusement in that regard. People、um, seem to get hooked on this kind of thing.、We're, I've chosen three、uh, place names from our, our catchment area for our、um, anatomy program, where we where we receive body donations donations from. Um, in the East Anglian region, so this is a, a little hamlet called Nasty in East Hertfordshire. Nasty, and that means、uh, it comes from Anglo-Saxon, and it means the eastern hedged enclosure. This, from my home county of Norfolk, Little Snoring.、Uh, Little Snoring. That comes from the personal name Snara. Snara was the leader of the settlers who who, who settled there. Um, and over the years, over many centuries, the adorable name "Little Snoring" seems to have evolved. Less cute,、uh, ugly in Essex. Anyone from ugly in Essex? No, es- that ugly rather specifically comes again from a from a personal name. So it's、um, what does it mean? It means the woodland clearing of a man named Ugger. U G G A. So there you go. And also, our names all have hidden meanings. You know, my name and your name. Um, you should probably know. So, Andrew, for example, comes from the prefix "andr," meaning man or warrior. Peter, very famously, comes from "petros," that's Greek,、uh, meaning a stone or rock, and it gives us the related word "petrified" or "turned to stone." And then, rather delightfully, Lucy. I don't know if there's any Lucys in your life. Comes from the Latin "lux" for light. And the same applies, really, to, to structures in the body. 
which have names which reflect their shape and their function and characteristics. And you can, you can imagine, perhaps, the excitement for uh, an, an anatomist many centuries ago, opening up a human body for the first time, looking at a region, seeing a structure, and having the opportunity to coin a, a name for it, what that experience must have been like. So we thought we'd tell you a little bit about the history of anatomy, which is the history of anatomical language. Started really with these guys about 2,000 years ago, Hippocrates and Galen, the father of Western medicine and the prince of medicine, respectively. Um, these guys, so anatomy actually is a word from Greek, meaning I cut up, I cut up anatomy. After the fall of Rome, which is sort of um, 500 years after Galen maybe, a bit earlier, um, these guys' works were translated first into Arabic and then into uh, Latin. Um, and were picked up by university physicians working in the 12th and 13th centuries in big uh, European cities. And these chaps, they promoted uh, anatomical language through their written work, through talking to their patients. And they probably also did um, human dissections directly um, and applied those terms to what they saw in human dissections, probably for the first time in recorded history. Um, previously, dissection seems to have been done mainly on animals. By that time, in English, we'd, we'd already acquired a lot of very fundamental anatomical terms from Old English and Old French that you'll all be familiar with. Things like stomach and face, gut and bladder. They came from Old French and Old English origins. And this meant that there was really sort of a, prolif a proliferation of terms, a lot of anatomical terms sloshing about, um, which were systematised and, and rationalised in, in the Renaissance when... Scholars were looking back to the classical era, thinking about reforming language and reforming medicine. Um, so, symbolised here on our slide with an engraving from Vesalius. Uh, that gives us the Renaissance. In our whistle-stop tour of an anatomy and the, and the history thereof, that brings us to the Enlightenment. Um, and in the Enlightenment, there was really an emphasis on empiricism, on really observing structures directly from nature. And William Harvey, who's a Cambridge graduate, and very famous for um, his work on circulation of the blood. That's probably considered the symbolic, the towering achievement of, of the Enlightenment. And this, uh, at this time, words that were coming into the anatomical language were sort of cobbled together from the prefixes and suffixes of Latin. And people say it's the, it's the age of terrible Latin but amazing anatomy. So that's William Harvey. And all this very hard work meant that by the 19th century, there were some 50,000 terms in the anatomical dictionary, in the anatomical lexicon, um, which is obviously unworkable. And so in the early 20th century, anatomists got together and they stripped all of those terms back down, got rid of lots of, ones, lots of structures that were named after people, um, and uh, had a much more rational system of, of um, something like 7,500 words. We haven't tackled all 7,500 in our little book, which I hope you think fit, is fitting in that uh, canon of work. Um, we just took the ones where there was sort of an obvious correlation between the meaning of a word and uh, the structure or shape um, of, a, of an anatomical part. Um, um, as Emily was saying, we, we were inspired to create this, partly through our teaching practice, but we also wanted to produce an, a book that made anatomy accessible to everybody, to you guys as well. Um, so Emily's going to talk again about a little bit about the process of producing the book itself. Thank you very much. Yeah, great. So as previously mentioned, um, I trained as a medical illustrator with the Medical Artists Association of Great Britain. And over the last 15 years or so, I must have illustrated well over 100 medical textbooks, so most of the ones you probably know, um, anatomical, surgical, cell biology, now kind of yoga anatomy, stuff like that. Um, and I wanted to put up some examples of the kind of book so that you can see the general aesthetic of an anatomical textbook, which, as you can see, is very functional. It's definitely a book that you would buy to learn from as a student, and not necessarily a book that you would buy to have on your coffee table at home or buy as a gift and perhaps not even buy as a book that, of someone that's kind of interested in anatomy but feels a little bit too intimidated to buy a book like Grey's Anatomy here on the bottom right, which actually retails at about, I think, about £120. So 
you know, they're not very accessible for anatomy books to learn from. Um, and I became quite interested in how to reframe anatomical knowledge so that it became a little bit more accessible for those that not only were studying anatomy and studying medicine, but maybe people that were just genuinely quite interested in how beautiful it is, because that's definitely what inspired me towards training to be a medical artist. And a few years ago, I created this book, Anatomy in Black, which was trying to do just that. So I wanted to take all the content... Um, of a normal anatomy textbook. So all the content of an anatomy atlas, all the illustrations, there's 365 illustrations in this book. Um, but I wanted to make it glamorous and grown up. And so um, this book was received incredibly well and it was a really interesting path and journey into looking at how to reframe anatomy so that it was more accessible. So when we started thinking about doing secret language, um, is that playing? That should play. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, we came to it with the same sort of approach, um, as Ida just suggested, that we wanted to create a book that wasn't just for students to learn the, the, the origins of all these words. We wanted to create something that may be like a beautiful gift book you could give to someone who just has a general interest in anatomy or someone that's just interested in the origin of words. So that was the, the premise of, of designing the book in the way that we had. So now we're going to move on to the actual book content of what we discussed throughout the book. And Cecilia's going to hopefully show you some bones <laughs> and other anatomical parts. Okay, thank you. Um, so for the rest of this talk, we're going to give you a flavour of the book um, by looking more closely at some specific anatomical terms and their origins. I'm afraid this will involve some audience participation and uh, perhaps looking at anatomical features on each other on yourself, which is an extremely un-British thing to do, so if you don't want to do it, that's fine. Um, but you also have the chance to handle uh, some bones that we've actually brought with us all the way from Cambridge. Um, they're very precious material, uh, museum pieces uh, that we've brought along, so please handle them very carefully when the time comes. So, you... Most... Anatomical textbooks will usually have a glossary of anatomical terms. However, these are usually ordered uh, alphabetically. And unless you're the kind of person uh, who loves reading a dictionary for, for fun, um, maybe there are several of you in the audience. I mean, I do have a friend who does this uh, and confesses to it. Um, then I think just an alphabetical list of anatomical terms is not actually very gripping or exciting. Um, so we decided to organize it by topics. So to think of what kinds of things the uh, ancient anatomists would have um, looked at and, um, and felt that the features in the body were analogous to um, in order to create this book. And so we chose 20 topics, uh, which are down here. Um, and we'll just illustrate one of the uh, topics that we, we've chosen. And then for the rest of the talk, then what we'll be doing is that we'll be um, illustrating several um, areas of topics within one structure. Okay, so uh, the first topic, uh, well, the, the, the only topic that I've chosen to illustrate is my favorite, which is the architecture topic. And as you can see here, um, we felt that as the anatomists kind of cast around for, you know, how they should name things, the, the first thing they would do is to look around their own home um, and to see what there is in their own home that they can name the anatomical features after. So here is a, a sort of normal kind of mo Roman villa with a plan then, and we'll be talking about uh, four of these terms in a sec. Okay, so, so if we start from the, from the sort of entrance, uh, first you enter a kind of hallway, um, uh, a passage, passageway, which we call the vestibule. And here um, is a cross-section of the larynx, of the voice box. Um, and we call the, the area, the passageway um, above your vocal cords, the vestibule. And this, this word vestibule is also used, actually, for, for many other areas of the body. Now, once you get into the house, you, meet, you go into this kind of reception area, which is called the atrium. Um, 
And the atrium is kind of in common use in, in the English language today. I think there are a lot of uh, hotels or museums. Um, I was actually looking for one at this festival site to see whether they would have had an, an atrium. Um, so that would be the sort of reception area. And in the heart, you find that you have the right atrium and left atrium, and both of these places, the atria, are where they receive blood from the rest of the body to to send to the ventricles to then pump out either to the lungs or to the rest of the body. So then as you go further into the house, you, you have these wings opening out from the general uh, part of the house. And that comes from the word ala, which means wing. And you can see that um, on this sacrum, sacral bone, which, which we'll illustrate later for you in the pelvis, um, the, the two side projections are called ala or ale. Um, on both sides. And if you look at your nose, um, on either side of the, the bit that points outward, these are called the ale nasi. So these are the lateral projections of cartilages um, on your nose. Now, um, in the house, there are also sometimes narrower passage, passageways, you know, leading to other rooms and so on. So these two um, passages, these narrow passages will be called forces. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll be doing that in a sec to look at your own forces, if you, if you will. <laughs> if you dare, yes. So, so now we'll look at different regions of the body which kind of incorporate different terms that have multiple topics. Um, so this is a kind of surface anatomy lesson. As I said, uh, it's rather un-British, but um, I hope you have a go. Um, so this, these are all things that are found in the mouth. Uh, some you can see without opening your mouth, but some you can, you can only see by opening your mouth. So, um, and we do these anatomical lessons um, in, in our teaching sessions so that students actually look at each other and palpate each other, touch each other. I'm, I'm not asking you to touch each other, don't worry. Um, that will be just one step too far. <laughs> um, okay, so... So the first thing that you can see on your cells, um, I mean, if you have a sort of pocket mirror, if you don't want to look at each other, you could, you could look at yourself or use your phone, um, look at yourself. So um, you can see that there's this little groove, this vertical groove above your upper lip, um, and that's called the philtrum. And in fact, it comes from a term called love potion, um, you know, um, because the, the Greek term, as, as some of you will know, philio is to love or to kiss. Um, and so it is possible that when the anatomist wanted to name this area, they think, well, it looks like either a kind of glass elixir bottle that holds love potions. Uh, not that I've ever bought a love potion, so I'm not sure <laughs> whether they all look like that or maybe simply for the fact that this area of the body is associated with some romantic connotations. Um, then secondly, if you do open your mouth, um, that, yes, maybe illustrated by my glamorous assistants here, um, then you can see that at the back of your throat, there's a hole, and that's the passage. Oh, good, you're doing it, great. Um, and that's called the forces of the mouth between the passageway between the oral cavity and your pharynx. And in fact, these pillars that you see, we call them forcio pillars. And you see these little things um, peeping out. They're the tonsils, the palatine tonsils that are peeping out between these two forcio pillars, which are, um, uh, which are uh, muscles um, connecting the palate to your tongue. Um, okay? Then while your mouth is still open, um, you can look for this fleshy extension of your soft palate that's hanging down, called the uvula. And the uvula is a diminutive of uva, which means grape. And so uvula means a little grape. So that's why it sort of looks like a sort of small grape hanging down. It's a very important structure, the uvula. Um, and then lastly, if while you've got your mouth open, you lift your your tongue up like that, um, you'll see that it's tethered to the floor of your mouth by um, a, a fold of membrane called the frenulum. And that's, again, a diminutive of the word frenum, which means bridle. So frenulum means a little bridle, so tethering, tying 
your tongue down. And sometimes this can be too extreme, um, and so children may be born with tongue tie, you, you must have heard of that, and this is the bit that um, can be cut, can be snipped with a pair of scissors in the clinic, hopefully with a bit of local anesthetic, or you can distract the child um, and say, look, look over there, you know, <laughs> while I just snip here uh, for the tongue tie. So that's the frenulum that you would be incising. Okay, so that's the mouth. Um, and then, ah, we've now got the bones. Now, this is going to be slightly complicated because um, we're going to have to uh, hand them around. Now, please be really, really careful with them because um, they are irreplaceable, because these are real human skulls. Um, and I will also try and show them um, on the visualizer, although I've only just discovered before I got onto the stage that I can't actually see what you're seeing on the visualizer. So, ah, I can now, because, but then you can't see the PowerPoint. So, so I think that the uh, IT uh, whiz people um, there are going to sort of switch back and forth. So with the uh, skull, so there's, um, are you, oh, you're, you're going down. Oh, right, so switch back to there. Uh, so we can see the suture here. So that's the, the first thing that you can see, which is the suture line. Are you going down? Oh, suture line, um, which is where the two skull bones are joined up, where they're connected. Um, and these, one of the sutures you may have heard of is called the sagittal suture. And the sagittal plane is actually the plane that divides the body into a left and a right and a left half. And then this is called the corona suture. We'll actually talk about the word corona um, a bit more. And that's the corona suture, which divides the frontal bone and the parietal bone. Um, so suture means seam. Um, so it's from the a fabric. So turning the skull the other way, you see that there are two bones on either side that are sort of encasing the, the, the brain. And these are called the parietal bones, and they are actually um, derived from a term peris, meaning the wall of a house. And so these two are like the walls of a house enclosing the brain and protecting the brain. So they're called the parietal bones. And then coming further down here, in fact, you can feel your own, actually. So you can feel your own zygoma, which in uh, lay terminology is called the cheekbone. Um, and this is supposed to look like a yoke. So zygoma um, comes from the word yoke. Uh, I think if we have the PowerPoint, is that all right? Yeah, so it's yoke or crossbar. And so the zygoma, the, the shape of the zygoma is like a yoke, which you sort of hitch two animals together to plow. Um, okay, I think. And then lastly, um, the, the, the sort of anatomist sort of strayed into the realm of astronomy by using the word orbit, of course. You're, used, um, you're familiar with the word orbit, which is kind of the, the, the track of a, a celestial object around a planet. Um, and so because the orbits are like uh, spherical, um, where the eyeballs sit. So that's, that's with the skull. I don't know whether you were going to, to, to take some of the skulls round. Okay, yes. So if we start with the next one, then um, Isla and Emily will be uh, either, really, I think. This one, yeah, this one's all right. So the next big bone that we'll see, which illustrates many different kind of topics, is the pelvis, the bony pelvis. Um, right, can we have the... Yeah. So... The word pelvis itself means a basin or a wide bowl, and you can see that that is what the pelvis actually looks like. Um, so you imagine that being a basin. In fact, in the, in the um, upright human, of course, it's, it's not lying back like that. Um, it's actually like that. Um, but there's the, the bowl shape is still, still very clear. I, yeah, okay. Um, and then what I'll do is maybe I'll, I'll show it everything on the visualizer and then we'll do the PowerPoint rather than going back and forth. So the second thing I was going to show is, I don't know whether you remember what I've 
um, said earlier on about the Roman house and the ala, which is the, the wing. Um, you remember I said of the ali um, nasi, of the wings of the nose, the cartilages. So these are the wings of the sacrum. So that's your sacrobone. A bit difficult to see. Can you see that? Yeah. So these two are the, the bones of the sacrum. Um, and while, you, while you're here, we might as well uh, teach you to sex a pelvis. So, well, let, let's see whether you have a good idea of whether this is likely to be a female pelvis or a male pelvis. Because once um, I was telling my husband when we were um, watching Morse or Lewis, some, some of these, um, you know, crime, and, and they dug up a, a bony pelvis, and they said, oh, it's a male. And I said, no, 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 it's wrong. <laughs> can't, you, can't you get your anatomical facts straight? You know? No, it's a female bony pelvis. Can't be a man. Uh, anyway, and any, any guesses for this, this one? Female, yeah. Oh, well done, yeah. So that's because the pubic arch is very wide. You imagine having, you know, having to deliver a baby from here. So the pubic arch is wide, and also the basin is much more shallow. Um, so in a, in a male pelvis, then the basins, the, these um, iliac crests are actually very, very vertical and narrow. And this is very narrow as well, this about this kind of angle. 60 degrees instead of, this will be about 90 to 120 degrees. So, so that's pelvis. And then on, on this side, is a, it's a fun um, term. So this is the kind of hip socket where your, where your hip bone sits, and that's called the acetabulum. And it's called the acetabulum, and it's a compound word of acetum, which is sort of like acetic acid, vinegar, um, and the tabulum bit, abulum bit, is, means cup. So it's called a vinegar cup. So presumably, <laughs> the ancient um, Romans used these little kind of cups to hold their uh, condiments. Um, so that's a that's a that's a very in, uh, a fun kind of um, uh, sort of term to think about. So I think that if we go back to the PowerPoint, I'll just show you that very quickly on here. Yeah. So so you can see the. Um, yeah, the whole of the pelvis being called a bowl, uh, the whole wide basin, and then that's the alar, and then that's the acetabulum, which is a vinegar cup. Okay, next one. Uh, we've got some more. Um, the hand that you're familiar with, and this one, you don't really have to look at the bones. I mean, there are certain things you can feel on yourselves. Hand. I have to get a hand out. Okay. Sorry. It's like a sort of magic show, isn't it? <laughs> Suddenly emerging. It's <laughs> <laughs> not bad. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> anyway, so um, yeah, yeah, rabbit. Yes, can't quite do a rabbit. So could we have the? Yeah, great. Um, so here you can see the bones of the hand, which are what we call the wrist bones, so carpal bones, and they're actually beyond the wrist. So if you look at, look at your, your hand, these carpal bones are actually here. They're beyond this wrist joint here. Um, and if you feel here, you should be able to feel a kind of little knob like that. Can you see a sort of little knob-like kind of bone? And that's called the pisiform. So in the form of a pea, so like a pea-shaped bone. So that's the pisiform. And here you can see in this hand, it's very, very clear, shows it very clearly. There's this massive hook. Can you see that? Yeah. So that's, that bone is called the hamate. Um, and you should be able to feel this hook. If you press hard enough, <laughs> you should be able to feel this hook. And sometimes, you know, so, so if you, you might be able to feel the hook here. And because a branch of the ulnar nerve passes next to this hook to supply these two fingers, you will find that sometimes if you prang it, you press hard enough, you may feel tingling. It's a little bit like if you prang your funny bone at the, um, at the elbow. Now, the other bone um, that's got an, an you know, that's, and, and that's to do with, um, you know, from the word hamas meaning hook, now, the other bone, which is, you can't feel very clearly, is this one just below the pisiform. It's called the triquetral. 
and that means three-cornered, so you're used to the word try being three, and there are lots of, you know, in our book that uh, will illustrate, you know, um, anatomical terms that are bi or di or tri or quadri um, or, um, and so on. And then the last one I was going to show you, now this one is more difficult to see, and in fact, I've actually brought one that's not so easy to see because it's been, it's been uh, strung together really well. <laughs> I didn't realize that there may be another one. I'll see if I can get another, <laughs> another thing. Ah, yes. Is there another hand somewhere? <laughs> oh, dear. Um, I think the hands disappeared. Um, never mind. Oh, there's one there. Oh, I see. Oh, great. I'll see whether this one will show it. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah. Um, yes. Oh, this one shows it better. Um, yeah, it's, it's difficult to see. But you can, can you see that if you look at this bone in cross-section like that, it actually looks like a moon. So it's a moon-shaped, a crescent-shaped bone. Yeah, called a lunate. Uh, and you're used to the word lunar, uh, lunar, uh, lunate. And that lunate actually can, can sometimes be fractured um, when people are protecting themselves. This fracture, fall on an outstretched hand is a very common fracture because we always put our hands out to protect our faces when we fall. And that can lead to a lunate dislocation or lunate fracture. Okay, great. Um, so I'll show you this. We'll go back to the PowerPoint. Um, yeah, so pisiform, like a P, a hook of hamate, a hook, hamate, hook, and, uh, sorry, <laughs> three-corner triquetral, and then the lunate. And then the scapula, which is the shoulder blade. Let's come to here. Uh, this you can also feel, but it depends on how many, uh, you know, whether you're wearing a lot of clothes or not. Um, so the, the shoulder blade actually sits like that anatomically, so facing forward, this thing facing forward. So, so this part, which is called the spine, ends in, in this massive outcrop called the acromion. And acromion, the acro bit, means the summit or the tip, and the omos means shoulder. So it's the tip of the shoulder. So you should be able to feel that, you know, in... So that's the, you know, if you feel your scapula at the back and then you feel it going into a point like that at your, at your shoulder. And then this one is harder to feel because you, you have to feel it right under your um, clavicle laterally, so on the outside, and it points forward like that. If you, um, you should be able to feel that just pointing forward. That's called the coracoid process. So anything called... Coid, oid, means like. So the cora, cora bit um, refers to the corax, which means a raven. So it's the, the raven's beak, like a raven's beak. Can you see that? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like that. And these are important points for attachments of muscles. So we'll go back to the PowerPoint, have a quick look at the um, Acromion, so summit or peak. So this is in, in, in the chapter called landscape. So there, there are a lot of landscape terms because, you know, they look at the house and there's not enough things in the house to name the anatomical terms from. So they go outside and then see a lot of, you know, different things that they can name things. Um, and also there are flora and fauna that they name things after. So that's the coracoid process or the raven's beak. And then one that um, Emily particularly likes is the patella, uh, which is, of course, your kneecap. Um, I'll just show you. Um, these are very precious indeed because uh, it's easy to slip into a pocket. Yes, I was going to say that... <laughs> I was going to say that um, you don't really want to be found with this kind of uh, material on your person if you're stopped by the police, whereas I can justify it. <laughs> I think it's quite hard for you to explain away <laughs> the bone in your pocket. So, uh, <laughs> so that's the patella. Um, and the patella is actually um, the largest, what we call, sesamoid bone in the body. And sesamoid meaning, you know, um, like a sesame seed. And the sesamoid bones are essentially bones that develop in tendons where they kind of go over 
angular um, areas to stop friction. Um, so that's why you know, your kneecap's going over the knee, which is constantly flexing and extending. Um, and so that's, that's the patella. So let's go um, just quickly to the PowerPoint. Yeah. So that's the patella in the quadriceps tendon, which, of course, you can feel on, uh, on yourselves and kind of wiggle about. Um, and that's like uh, a, one of the sesamoid bones in the body. There are lots of others, um, but the patella is the only one that we've got to bring to show you. Um, and then just so that you realize that our book is not all about the skeleton. I mean, it sounds as though at the moment that it's all about the skeleton. Um, and we've brought some other things to show you as well, but we don't really have time to, to show each one. Um, but of course, you, hopefully you, you're aware that I can't bring uh, bits of human tissue um, to hay. It was bad enough <laughs> bringing all these bones, let alone uh, you know, thinking of bringing human material. So clearly it's not possible, so we brought some models. Um, so a couple of um, uh, things in the heart. Um, so if we do that, so this is a model of the heart. Um, and just to remind you of the word atrium, you, you remember? So, um, so we've got the reception room of the Roman house. So that's your right atrium, uh, which receives blood from the superior vena cava, your left atrium, uh, which receives blood from the pulmonary veins, which have been um, oxygenated. So, okay. And then... Here, you can see, this, actually, it's not, not too bad a model. Usually, we don't like working with models because we have the real thing um, in Cambridge. Um, and these are called cordy tendineer, and which means essentially heart strings. Um, and so these are uh, tendinous cords that connect the papillary muscle, which are muscles jutting out from the um, walls of the ventricle, to the valve cusps of the valves that are between the different chambers of your heart. Um, so you can see they are like chords of a, of a musical instrument. Okay. Um, another uh, sort of word that you may know is, um, I mentioned the word coronoplane. So the corona means um, a crown and something that sort of encircles the head. So this is called the coronary sinus, which actually drains blood back from the heart itself. So, you know, because the heart muscles themselves also generate deoxygenated blood and puts it back into the uh, right atrium. And you can see here, I'll just put this back. Um, also, I, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of coronary arteries. So that's, again... The reason they're called coronary arteries is because they, they encircle the heart. Yeah? Um, I think that that's all from the heart. If we go back to the PowerPoint. Uh, so atrium, we've done, and then the cordy tendineer, which is um, you know, named after cord string. Um, and there are other musical instruments like the fibula, you, uh, no, not the fibula, the tibia, which is the bone next to the fibula, which is actually named after a flute-like instrument. Um, and so, and then the, oh, the mitral valve I didn't show you, but one of the valves, if you turn it upside down, because it's got two cusps, it, it can't be illustrated that well in, in this plastic heart, I'm afraid. Um, and it looks like a bishop's mitre. Um, they have a lot of imagination, these uh, anatomists. Um, and then, of course, the coronary sinus. Um, okay. And the last thing that we were going to show you is um, this massive ear, uh, this massive ear model, of course, which is not to scale. <laughs> it's, it's very, very big. Um, yes, yeah, so if we... Now, I have to sort of turn it this way to show you. So that's your pinna, that's your ear, that's your meatus. We call that... Um, a, a sort of passageway. Again, another word for passageway. There are lots of words for passage in both Latin and Greek that are used um, in the, in the um, anatomical lexicon. So that's called the external meatus, your sort of external ear canal that goes right up to the tympanum or the eardrum. 
In fact, tympanum essentially comes from the word drum, again, a sort of musical instrument. And then these little um, ossicles, these little um, bones in the ear, you, you may have heard of them. They're called malleus, incus, and stapes. And the malleus is named after a hammer, and then incus, the uh, anvil, and stapes, uh, like a stirrup. I don't know whether you can see the stapes. I hope you can. It's... It's difficult, because these, these things tend to kind of... Can you see that? Oh, no. If I take that away... Yeah. <laughs> can you see that? So that's like a stay piece, uh, the stirrup. Yeah, that, that's clear. Yeah? Yeah? And then, and then of course, you've, you've seen the cochlea already. Um, there are also two little things inside this, which is also called the vestibule. You remember the word vestibule? The, the kind of... Um, passageway at the beginning from, from the entrance hall to the atrium. Um, that's also called the vestibule, be between the semicircular canals in the inner ear, which deal with balance and equilibrium, and the cochlea, which deals with hearing. And there are two little things in there called the utricle and saccu, which are named after little pouches, um, bags or pouches um, in the ancient world. Okay, so we'll go back to the PowerPoint. Um, okay, so that's meatus, the passageway. Uh, and that's, again, as a sort of landscape term. And then the three little ossicles that transmit sound from the eardrum to the cochlea. So the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup. And then the cochlea, and then the utricle and the saccule, which I thought was very, very imaginative, <laughs> the bag and the little pouch. They're, they're little membranous sacs within that vestibule. Okay? So, um, just, to, just for the sort of ling people with a linguistic bent, um, we've also put some appendices together at the end of the book um, to talk about prefixes and suffixes and how the words are joined on together, like adjectives, how compounds are made, and how things are, are diminutives, like frenulum, uvula, those kind of words, and then some of the verbs that are used in anatomical terms as well. But I'm not going to go through all these. Um, so thank you very much, um, and thank you for participating so enthusiastically. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yes, we, we just need to get the bones back. <laughs> Thank you.